Welcome to the Fourth Estate Podcast. This week, we were more than lucky enough to grab T. Geronimo Johnson, author of Welcome to Braggsville, and speak with him about the novel, about his writing processes, his personal soundtrack, the challenges that he faced as a writer, and just how egotistical penning a novel really is. We spoke on the progression, the superficial progression, of race relations in the United States, black culture, the New South versus the Old South, and white militias. We asked him, very starkly, how Ferguson, how the I Can't Breathe campaign, and how Obama's inauguration as president made him feel as a black man in the US. The answer he gave was both heartbreaking and terrifying. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. What's the backstory to writing of Welcome to Braggsville? Where did this all come from? Hmm. Okay, you know, um, it's, I, I think it's come from it's come from a couple of different places. For for one thing, I always wondered why no one has ever done precisely what these four kids do, mm. and go to a Civil War reenactment and say, okay, let's just um, you know, let's let's sort of diversify the cast here. Mm-hmm you know, and stage a somewhat larger production in order to, uh, you know, give us all a stronger sense of uh, what was going on at the time. But, um, you know, and then aside from that, there, there was a, um, an incident that occurred in, I think it was Bradenton, Florida, hmm. in the very, like, early, early 90s, where the the Klan was having a rally, and then a gay rights group and a black uh, activist group showed up to protest the Klan. And then at some point over the course of the morning, this particular um, black group of protesters joined forces with the Klan to protest the gay rights group. And... Um, you know, there's, there's really, there's no punchline to that. It's just mm. absolutely absurd. But, you know, the thing is that, um, you know, so much about, uh, like, you know, race and sexism and, and homophobia, however um, dangerous and uh, unsettling hate may be when it played, plays out, some, some elements always strike me as being absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. You know? And, um, yeah, so, you know, I've had the idea for a while but I'm a serial monogamist, both in relationships <laughs> and in writing projects. And so, um, you know, all the while I was working on that, that first novel, Hold It, I, I just was not allowed to write anything else. That's sort of my rule. Mm-hmm. And so that was a good, you know, seven years where all I could do is take notes on other projects. And... Um, after after finishing that, I, I I jumped on this and I found early on the voice of um, of Nanny Tag, yeah, which um, and of Grandma's um, Nana, which I wrote um, actually on on a cell phone in a hotel room <laughs> in Ireland of all places, <laughs> and um, and then that was it. I was just sort of I was sort of pulled into it, you know. And at first, Duran was supposed to be black, and mm-hmm. that was going. That was just like sort of trying to. I don't know, like trying to, you know, trying to push, I was just trying to like push something into a hole that, that just quite, didn't quite fit into. And uh, once I decided that perhaps Duran should be white, everything just fell into place. Mm. Yeah. No, that's incredible. You can, you can, you can tell that this is something that has been, I suppose, brewing in mm. you for a long time I think it's not just a you know it's not just an A B C D this is a story this is what happened here's a narrative there's so much to it there's so many layers to it and I think that I mean the thing that surprised me was that initially it surprised me that Daron was white because I you know I just thought well you know how can how can he how can T. John Ray Johnson write through the eyes of something like a life that he doesn't know, but I think as soon as you get reading and you see what happens, you, the whole you can see that it's just a different world that Duran has access to. That if his character were black, he just wouldn't. So, you know, I think it's you know you can tell that there's a richness in it that's not just come from nowhere. And um, we also wondered why you write at all. 
you know, we, we you could do it very well. You do it well, obviously, but at what point in your life did you think, right, I'm going to be a yeah. writer? Here it um, is. You know, I've I've always been a um, you know, gosh, it sounds terribly it it sounds terribly um, almost. Uh, egotistical or something to say I've always been a creative sort so I feel like I should say I've always been a little bit left of center mm. or right of center or like looking to the left when everyone was looking to the right yeah. or like the class is outside I'm still inside the class is inside I'm still on the monkey bars <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I managed to like contain all of those like errant little personalities when I was yeah. working in finance but I've always um felt this uh, desire to create. And um, I think that writing prose was ideal for me. I, I painted, you know, for a little while, but that requires a bit more equipment, you know. Mm. And um, I started off writing screenplays. I thought I wanted to be a screenplay uh, or, or like a screenwriter, but, yeah. um, you know, my first experience uh, with that was a little bit frustrating only because there's so many people involved in writing the story. Mm. And at the time, I felt that uh, what was happening is that a, a story that had a chance to be a good story was being um, sort of like denatured and, mm. and, and diluted. Sort of yeah. It also like must have so much more to do with, with money if you're, if you're talking screenwriting as opposed to novels. Mm. There's so much, you know, people's just dollars are writing on it and makes it very kind of restricted. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I and I thought I need to learn how to to do this story writing thing mm. that doesn't require anyone else. You know, um, and so um, I've been fortunate to have access to a lot of really like rich and supportive writing communities. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I think that one thing I wanted to do is is write stories and novels that reflect. Um, you know, ways that I see the world mm. working and things that I would want to read and also things that were maybe just a little bit less coy yeah. about um, some of the problems that we're facing today because I'm very much interested in writing about now. Like, it's really easy to write about 1960 and yeah. say things were so bad. Um, well, I think also one of the things that we realize is that the differences between 1960 and now that you know they're few you, mm. you know it's there's not you know what has there been a huge amount of progression that's something that we're all having to having to face mm. right 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 and yeah a lot a lot of the progress has been superficial mm. Mm. yeah absolutely surface level yeah yeah mm. so if we could um talk a little bit about character development because you've got these four um, this amazing um the four little indians this amazing quartet and um just wondering because often something that i found really striking and so effective is that actually there's very little punctuation and yet you can hear their different voices coming through so clearly it's it's quite remarkable um and we were wondering um how how did you come about creating these characters did they all kind of pop into your head or, or are they based on people that you've come across in life because they're all so wonderfully and starkly different you know these these are probably um to some extent based on people that i know in life but i can't give any of those people uh the credit uh, <laughs> that they deserve um you know whereas with with the first novel hold it i had a lot of friends who were soldiers and um mm. you know obviously i was drawing from their experiences mm, yeah. but um with with Braggsville, I knew that I needed a number of distinct lenses. Right. And so, in addition to Duran, we we had to have a black guy. You know, we had to have someone black. We had to have a white female because um, that's a you know each of these have very like specific social profiles. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they move through the world in different ways. Some have fins and some don't. Right. Some are aerodynamic and some aren't. Um, uh, and, and then I, and I wanted to have someone who was Asian, but I didn't want to have someone who was necessarily, um, a member of an Asian group that mm. is, is fully accepted and with which everyone is already familiar. Yeah. Right. So, you know, so I had someone who is, um, 
you know, not at what would be considered the top of that particular of that particular um, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, this whole thing's like this recursive kind of process. And so when I, I you know, I started writing and I, and, I, and I wrote a bio for each character, which is what I do at, at some point, usually around um, maybe a third of the way in when I know who the characters are. I have mm-hmm. to leave the text and give them all a full life. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, m- much of the stuff in that bio will never make it onto the page directly, mm-hmm. but it sort of presses through. And, um, you know, early, and the reason I mentioned that is recursive, because also what was happening early in the process of this book is that I, I was handling the punctuation a little bit different. There's a lot of embedded dialogue. There's a lot yeah. of dialogue sort of used as like um, adjectival clauses. It's like these adjectival kind of deployments of dialogue. Mm. And what I what I also knew I wanted was um, a a um, an experience that that sort of blurs this line between what people will think and what people will say, mm. because this is one of the biggest challenges that we're all always facing, and this is something that I'm really interested in as a novelist: the difference between what we will admit to publicly, what we will admit to privately, and what we don't even know is actually driving our car. Mm. Yeah. And so in this book, I was trying to, to move between these um, without necessarily announcing so. Mm. And so um, that, that particular like, goal or that demand placed this, this pressure on me to, to really try to um, distinguish the voices. Because uh, if I had to use quotation marks, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd have that very clear boundary that's yeah. like, this this like chasm between what's said and what's thought right yeah and i i just knew like in my gut that the book wouldn't do the work that it was supposed to do if that were the case and Mm -hmm. i believe that a novel should be an experience like quite literally like an emotional experience and so um the you know the, the the fact that i wasn't always going to indicate who was saying what or when someone was even talking created mm. these these pressures that really required me to distinguish these their, their voices sometimes just through content and sometimes yeah. through you know just through like syntax or sentence mm. or other sentence structures like when charlie goes on his like sir rampage mm. in the uh interrogation well the book it does i think because of that it does have a certain a rhythm to it almost and uh, the prose is very stylistic and it made us wonder you know, what are your literary influences and if not what are your musical influences because surely the those they feed into they feed into the writing of the novel you know um i would well well first of all I'll, i will i i would i'll make a soundtrack for each book and i will only listen to that soundtrack when i'm writing that book oh can you tell us what um, was on the soundtrack for this um I, I can't tell you everything that's on the soundtrack. I, know I don't know. You know, I don't know why this is so personal to me because I keep getting asked to do a set list for for Large Hearted Boy, and I just can't bring myself to to like reveal the music that's involved in, no, in music making is these, a, these music novels. is a very personal. It's yeah. a very personal thing. Yeah, but um, I will I will say that for Welcome to Braggsville, there was a bit of Arcade Fire. There Amazing. was a yeah. lot of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> there was an awful lot of the boss involved. Um, there's there's always a little bit of um, of like American R&B and soul. Nice, yeah. uh, just because that has a very um, that always you know provokes in me a, a, a little bit of a nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then I think in, in you know in general, and I heard a student say this the other day, and I, I was so glad that that, that he said it. But he, he felt like um, in America, rap uh, is the best argument for poetry, and and so definitely I um, do try to listen to to rap, you know. And um, in addition, I have this this habit of mishearing people, mm. and usually what I mishear is is sort of interesting in some way, mm, you know, yeah. how, how, you know, like, like you, like, you know, um, like that Tears for Fear song, everybody wants, wants to, rule to rule the, the world. world. Yeah. 
yeah, for years people were like, everybody wants to hold her hand and all these <laughs> other things. Like, you know, thank God for the Internet. Now at least we know what we're singing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so um, often I'll mishear something mm-hmm. and I'll write that down and what I think I heard will become sort of a springboard mm. for uh, turning, turning the conversation. Brilliant. So um, I- yeah, and then just uh, in terms of, and I know you're going to have to like cut half this out, but then in terms of like intentionality, I just always feel like I need to turn it just a little bit so Mm -hmm. that, so that the reader can't quite see around the corner of the sentence. Yeah. No, I understand. I think Mm -hmm. you can tell there was so much, you know, not that the book makes you feel silly, but I spent a lot of time being like, hold on a second, hold on, hold on, hold on, and going back over myself. But I think it's absolutely incredible because it just gives you, you know, you're just, yeah, you're not expecting it. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like anything I've read. It's not typical literature, put simply, you know. Yeah. We just spent the whole time and sort of coming into each other and being like, did you read that? What did that bit? Yeah, okay. And, you know, there are different interpretations of it. I think you've done, a, you know, an incredible job at keeping us... On our toes completely. On our toes, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, because I really feel like, um, you know, when I when I first started writing, one of my mentors said that you're said to me, you know, it's sort of egotistical to ask another human being (laughs) to just sit down (laughs) and consider your thoughts solely for, you know, several hours, several days. And 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 that's really um, stuck with me and I feel like if I'm going to write a book and ask someone to read it I really should try to make it worth their time and I should try to make it engaging I feel like that's incumbent upon mm-hmm. me especially because of what I write about Absolutely. that um, I need to do that work to make it worth your while thank you well, we appreciate yeah. it <laughs> um, so we did ser- we searched high and low for a stereotype and welcome to Braggsville but you seem to have subver- subverted all of them so was it important that you you know, it was important that this book and the characters in it transcended the social norms? Because I know you spoke a bit about, you've really spoken a bit about, you know, Louis and not being that sort of typical, or, you know, all of them being their own person. But I just wonder if you thought, hold on a minute. So, like, you know, Charlie, for example, I'm not going to, you know, read out character descriptions, but I know that Charlie is definitely not what he appears to be. And we find out throughout the book that actually he's not. And, you know, it's very conflicting in him to be this you know, to present himself as something that he's not because of his appearance. I wondered if it was your if it was your aim to say, you know, he is A, but he's going to be B, you know? Uh, definitely, you know, um, you know, that's probably um, most pronounced with, um, with uh, Darren Duran mm-hmm. in terms of the, the shifting punctuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, it, it needed to be, it needed to be the case for everyone, and, and obviously it's a case for Lewis because he goes through a kind of complete transformation into another form of being mm-hmm. uh, and another type of presence, but I wanted it to be the case for everyone. Um, I want e- Each of them had to go through uh, a very significant, um, you know, transformation. You know, but, you know, the thing, part of it is just that this world changes us, mm. and, and we, we start... I was thinking about this for something I was writing a couple of days ago. You know, we start off maybe like the, almost like the, um, this is like the Earth, Wind, and Fire song. You know, a child is born and the way of the world makes his heart turn cold. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we start off and then we, we find that adult responsibilities are competing with our facility for wonder and our willingness to question. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted to kind of wrap that all around the, this transformation that they're all going through and to, um, um, you know, at the, at the same time uh, present this idea that, you know, people are not as they appear. And in fact, they may often be quite, quite the opposite. Mm. But um, it had to happen for all of them because you needed to get like this sense that like their collective efforts are much more important than any of their sort of individual um, challenges or mm-hmm. obstacles, because I think that this is what's happened far too often, um, or, or yeah, it's just and, and it still does in terms of making any advances in you know social um, rights and civil rights that everyone thinks their problem is only their problem, mm-hmm. and um, that's just. That's just not that's just not the case, and we end up getting balkanized in our thinking, and we end up getting balkanized emotionally. 
but you know the the fact is that like uh like black people need to be able to work with white people in order to address the issues that affect black people and men have to work with women and vice versa and mm-hmm. the heterosexuals with homosexuals you know they're they're just these um you know these various continuums and uh, just by my mind um if we are not you know, and this this sounds like a tangent, but this is sort of what's at the seed of it. What I'm trying to build through the experience, I mm-hmm. guess, is that you know, we we have to be willing to um, work with those people who are disadvantaged by our advantage. Yeah. And and that's what they're each sort of doing in mm-hmm. some in some kind of way. Mm. We had a, um, when we were talking about. The way that the characters affect... It's interesting you say about the characters, you know, we are affected, you know, we're sort of tainted as we grow up, I mm. suppose. Um, but if you look at all those characters, the way that they interplay with each other socially, it's never, again, as clear-cut as, you know, like one person is influencing another person. You know, it's just that way. It's, it's interesting looking at the way that they work around each other and the way that they end up sort of coming together, going apart, coming together, going apart... And it's ne- it's not actually representative of you know like one set of people mm. or one set you know how things are, are meant are meant to work. So again, it's like you've managed to subvert the whole idea of like peer pressure and sort of growing up and being you know obviously there's a, a we're not going to ruin anything, but there's a huge thing in the book that does affect everything from then on. But I think the characters still maintain a dynamic that is to the, to themselves and mm. an integrity that is for themselves. You know. Mm. Right. Yeah, they're all sort of forced to retreat mm. to their corners and and reconsider everything. Mm. So, Darren, Darren, with or without an apostrophe, um, who wants to be plain old Darren, and um, which I guess is a sort of reverse form of cultural um, appropriation. Um, we're wondering if this was intentional because it is such a brilliant piece. You know, when he's in the first scene with the counselor and she's like. Daron, um, are, you, are you sure about that? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's just so brilliant. And I'm wondering, yeah, what's underneath that that little moment? You know, I, you know, everyone, everyone wants to fit in. Um, I, I think everyone wants to fit in, and, um, um, you know. I guess part of part of what was happening is that there's something you know about his name that is obviously going to cause a reader mm. to make one particular set of um, assumptions about him. Um, you know, but also there's that there's that you know period of like conscious becoming that's so tied into um, the naming of things and. In his case, what he gets the opportunity to do is to name himself, mm. you know, as he wished he could be named. So there's a, there's a whole lot there's a whole lot wrapped up in there, um, and then that also ends up opening up a lot of doors in the book because of course there are places where the where like names drop out mm-hmm. or kind of these pseudonyms, you know, arise. Mm. But um, I don't think I answered your question at all. No, you did. You did. I think yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's also it's one of those questions that's intentionally not really a yes or no question. Well, I think if you just think about cu- cultural appropriation, is it the, uh, you know you appropriate what you want to, mm. I suppose. So you have mm. you have answered the question. Mm. Thank you so much. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's this amazing um, descriptive uh, part about Atlanta Airport um, and and how it's described as the New South. Uh, and we were just wondering if we could kind of, if you could expand a bit on, on this idea of the New South and is it sustainable and is there a still a, a rich, I guess, kind of old South um, that's still reacting against it? Um, and I was also wondering, the the New South that's described does seem very, like, classy, but also there's a lot of kind of wealth on show. Um and I was wondering if the the more bitches and bling side, the reductive side of kind of current R and B and hip hop, um, do you think that's had an impact on it actually, kind of within society as opposed to just within the book? Is that a, a reflection of a of a wider thing? 
Um, you know, well, goodness. Um, yeah, sorry, that was like eight questions in one go. Know, uh, America is blinged out, and mm. you know, uh, you know, the thing is that when we when we talk about uh, black culture or hip hop culture in this country, it feels like we're talking about American culture overall. Like yesterday on the television, I I saw an advertisement for an innocuously named, um, um, like, body wash mm. marketed towards women. It, it had, I think summer was in the title, but leading up to it was a bunch of strutting by women of various races, and the song, of course, was something about having swagger. <laughs> you know, so... It's very um, important to have swagger. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, so... So, um, I, I find it increasingly hard if not impossible to distinguish between hip-hop culture and american culture overall and and, and in fact it's uh you know hard to imagine what 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 we would have if we didn't have that but um you know the thing the thing that makes atlanta uh, unique is that there's such a high concentration Mm -hmm. of african americans with wealth and power Mm and uh, who, who work together to achieve, uh, you know, common, common ends. Mm-hmm. And so there aren't too many other cities like that in the country. And there are, in fact, none. You know, there are, in fact, none. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's quite unique. It's quite unique in that way. And it's still going, it's still going strong. It's still attracting people of, of all races. And um, but fortunately, though, it has it has this um, this black population that makes it a pretty healthy place for a black person to grow up, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in a way that um, it just isn't if you're, um, you know, I don't know, maybe in, in like Arizona or, say, Idaho, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, that may be changing a, a little bit there is a lot of gentrification going on, mm-hmm. you know, in Atlanta. The the demographics are somewhat shifting a little bit, but um, there is still a, a high concentration of progressive-minded uh, people of color doing good work there, and I, I think that's going to last for quite some time. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as the New South Overall, outside of the book, you know, people use it in so many different ways that mm. I can't speak to all of the various like connotations and denotations. But within within the book, when you know, when Darren's at the airport, you know, he's he's reflecting on this idea that okay, wait a minute, here are so many different kinds of black people, mm. right? That all of your all of your previously conceived notions are just blown out of the window. Yeah. You know, and for a while, a long while, um, longer than I care to admit, I worked in finance, um, real estate finance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were occasions when this is, you know, I wish I, 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 wish I were making this up, but I'm not. There were occasions when, occasions when um, banks would um, basically take bus tours through southwest Atlanta. Mm-hmm because the lenders needed to see for themselves Guilford Forest and all these other developments in that area um, and say, okay, wow, you have, a, you know, miles of million-dollar homes owned by black people. Mm. We can loan them money. Yeah. You know, um, you know and so that's, that's really the new South that, that Darren is thinking about, mm. you know, that um, uh, there's, definitely no more sharecropping in in that area or if so it's it's at a completely different scale one that makes it unrecognizable mm. yeah while at the same time you know we're, we're still have big problems in this country overall with income inequity mm. yeah you know and um you know and i understand it's become becoming more of an issue in europe as well too mm. now on this point you're from new orleans which um i guess old south I don't know how, how much you'd agree with me, but kind of um, rules, old South rules still apply there. Um, and we were wondering um, how you were affected by uh, Hurricane Katrina, because we know you now live in, in Berkeley, um, but in a personal way and also the impact um, on yourself and your family and society. You know, of, of course, um, you know, I think a lot of people have, 
identified the, the storm and the aftermath of the storm as being a symptomatic of deeper issues. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's very true. Um, you know, me personally, I know that, uh, well, my, my grandparents' home in the East was, was ruined and mm-hmm. um, people were shifted around. And I, I still think that um, were it not for all of the, the relocation in the wake of the storm, that my, my grandmother would still be, would still be with us. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, I, um, I remember watching, watching the coverage and listening to the various terms being bandied about, you know, um, if someone black was in the store looking for food, they were a looter, mm. you know, and if someone white was in the store looking for a food, uh, food, they were a, um, you know, like a survivor. Yeah. They were, you know, salvaging. <laughs> yeah. They were like salvaging. Yeah. You know, and, and when they, and, and, you know, when they show up in Texas, they're refugees or so mm. forth and so on. I'm just sort of watching, you know, watching this coverage and, um, and I, and I realized that, uh, it, it sort of crystallized for me this this question that I'd had for for a really long time um, and it forced me to go back and rewrite my entire first novel mm-hmm. which at that point was only 275 pages before it ended up being 550 it was 275 <laughs> but it mm-hmm. ended the week after the storm hit and I couldn't pretend that I didn't know the yeah. storm had hit mm-hmm. there's a longer story there but I'm watching all this coverage and I found myself wondering okay um, how do we actually learn to care about people who are not like us mm-hmm. You know, I found myself really, um, really curious about that, um, and 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 watching that coverage gave me the words for it. Um, and that question has persisted in a way, um, in a strong way, because it's really one of the questions in Braggsville as well. Mm. You know, have, have you found the answer? You know, um, you know, I haven't. It, it seems there are a number of ways, but that it, it requires. Um, like conscious empathetic work mm. and listening and it's you know there's there, there's 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 a whole lot to it but it's it's more than just um it's it's more than just sort of retreating into the notion of color blindness and saying i'm not going to offend people mm-hmm. you know because um, i don't actually see your race or you know i don't see your, you know, gender or whatever. Um, yeah. It's like the idea that, you know, America and Europe are post-racial and, and post-gender, and it's like, oh, mm. bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know, which is which is the opposite, which is to me is like a kind of, um, um, like, social death mm. in, a, in a way. Um, well, not in a way, just uh, like a total social death. Yeah. And so um, I, um, you know, for the, for the storm, yeah, you know, suddenly, like, there's a, there's a, you know, a storm in my head now. Mm. But I know Sorry. that it, I know it clarified that question, and I know that it motivated me to work harder at doing what I do. Yeah. You know, it definitely motivated me to work harder at doing what I do. Um, one of the things, I mean, obviously this is going to be obvious, but, you know, obvious question, but Ferguson, and not just Ferguson, but the Eric Garner I Can't Breathe campaign. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we're here, and we, some of us, not all of us, obviously, are, I feel, almost as affected by the goings-on there, because, I mean, we probably feel as impotent as people in America do, just watching it and not being able to do anything, because obviously we're here, your laws don't apply to us, we can't get involved, and the support that we can give is limited. It's on the internet, and it's on, you know, forums, and it's, you know, going to marches here. Um... But do you, you know, how has this, you know, because it, I think it's impacted on loads of us here negatively. I think especially mm. a younger generation because we're we're seeing it, you know, real time. We're we're researching it. We're looking it up. But you know, has this given you not a negative outlook, but has, you know, what kind of perspective has this has this given you on your existence as a black male in America? Uh, you know, none at all. It, it, it's had it's had really very little effect on me. It's been frustrating. Mm. It's been frustrating. It's been extraordinarily painful, but it's not news. Yeah. Those things. So for me, it's not at all news. 
you know, um, thing, isn't it? you know, the, the the book the book builds to uh, in some way, you know, Charlie's speech, this crescendo, mm. uh, where he's laying a lot of this information out, mm. and um, I, um, you know, it's. It's an unfortunate news cycle. Um, at the same time, I'm fortunate that, that more people are, are aware of it mm. because I've had this particular, many of us, have, uh, especially black males, black females, we've had this reading of American history and of contemporary American society for so long, and people mm. sort of look at it like, look at us sidewise, like, well, you're being paranoid, and, yeah. you know, the cops are here to protect and serve, but protect <laughs> and serve whom, mm. right? Um, um, or, you know, serve whom to whom, you know, and like, you know, there's the whole public school to jail pipeline, you know, there's the fact yep. that America's gone from being a slave state to a, uh, j- um, you know, a Jim Crow country to a carceral state. And so um, the, the notion of like policing back black bodies has not changed mm. at all since we first came to this country. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, the, 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 the particular incidents, um, they they rouse an anger in me, uh, while at the same time they, they break my heart, as they always do. But Ferguson, Garner, that, that was not at all news to me. Mm. And, um, you know, that's actually one of the things I've been, I've been writing about, and it, but it comes up more directly in different ways in the first novel, mm. because the character in the first novel ends up visiting uh, two inner-city morgues. Yeah. You know, and that ends up being like a comment on on this on this plague of uh, you know of the unconscionable um, premature deaths of all these black men. You know, and but it's not just it's not just black men. Of course, the, um, some of the police are just completely out of control. Mm. Uh, black women, uh, people of all races, have been subject to undeserved abuse while being taken into custody yeah. um, and, and the book and then and Braggs will touch on that a little bit too mm. and you've also written um, we've read the first draft of, of this amazing essay that I hope it's okay we, we talk about we won't spoil anything um, the rebirth of a nation and um, just just to give listeners a, a, an idea of a few of the topics um, Obama's inauguration and ascendance the KKK in its various incarnations then mm-hmm. and now uh, white supremacy joining the military for their own reasons. Oh, my essay. Yeah. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I should have made that clear. They were like, hmm, that sounds so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's your essay. Um, yeah, can you can you discuss discuss some of those those topics or topics? This is so redundant, but like some of discuss the essay with us. I was going to say what's been interesting, um, you know, also the word for it is is disturbing, mm-hmm. is that in the wake of Obama's election, there have been there's been a rise in militias. I I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I I think they've grown something like fivefold. Um, which is, uh, you know, really disturbing because these militias tend to have a very specific profile. Mm. You know, the thing is that none of them, um, or very few of them, claim to be uh, supremacist groups per se, mm. though they may not have any any um, black members. Some of some of them do. Like I think it might be Promise Keepers. You know, they Promise Keepers I think has uh, mostly military uh, or ex-military. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, folk and and uh, law enforcement folk, but you know the the really disturbing thing that that came up when I was doing the research for this is the notion of constitutionality, and this mm. seems to be a theme that all of these groups claim that they are, um, you know, gathering together and arming themselves in order to protect the Constitution and in order to prevent a, um, you know, a wayward government from, you know, sort of outgrowing its, uh, you know, britches and and just taking over everything. Mm. And so, you know, when I ended up reading um, the initial, like, chartering documents for the KKK, this was their argument as well, Mm. you know. And 
you get a little bit uneasy when you hear some of the people, you know, say some of the things they're saying today, but the, the research sort of, you know, made it clear, like, here's, here's the, the lineage of this idea. Um, and, and basically, constitutionality has become, um, you know, the shield uh, behind which uh, various, um, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, racist groups mm. operate. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's become their cloak. You know, and it's a way. It's it's just it's now it's now a, a very weighted, you know, coded term. Mm. Does it frighten you? Um, you know, I I I was I, I you know when I completed the the research for the essay, I think I was a little bit disturbed because it's, you know, I'm I'm fine to intuit things, and I will generally, um, sort of put my intuitions off to the side. But uh, doing the research confirmed all of these all of these intuitions, mm. Mm. you know, in, in in a way that was, um, you know, this wasn't the case where you want to say I'm right. Yeah, you know, I knew it. Um, so what's unfortunate is that so few people, you know, see it as you know as what it is, and you know it's um, you know, and I get it though. I get it though. There's there's a lot of racial anxiety in this country. What, what's going to happen when you get the black president? Which mm. is why as soon as it looked like he was going to win, people were saying, "Give me my country back." People were crying. Mm. You'd, you'd see people at rallies just crying, <laughs> "Give me my country back!" Like like Obama had shoplifted their country. Mm. You know, looted. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, where's my? Con- it was in the driveway. Now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and uh, I, you know, I get, I do get, I do get the anxiety. I do, I do sort of get the anxiety, but, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, what's, I think the problem is not that people have this anxiety, it's that politicians stoke the anxiety. Mm, yeah. uh, that's like, that's like the bigger problem, you know, that the people who are in, in charge and who should be quote unquote the leaders are not necessarily um, leaders in terms of demonstrating ways of being mm. that are admirable, um, but more so they're they're just sort of rousting um, people and getting people all you know um, you know foaming at the mouth and, mm. and, and, and and anxious, and so they're feeding they're feeding off fears. But this goes back to I think uh, Nixon and the GOP. Mm. Yes. Well, I think that it's fear is control, isn't it? And I mm. think that's the yeah. way to. That's the way to keep your people in line. It's just used as campaign fodder and yeah. to, for the battlegrounds, yeah. Um, and just going back to something that we, just a word that we talked about, um, a way of describing it earlier as being superficial. Um, is there, uh, I mean, what do you think, is there a danger that actually driving these things kind of almost back into the Constitution, kind of reconstitutionalizing them, does that make it, I mean, you've already said that, you know, it's, it's really it's really quite disturbing, Um does that make it for the foreseeable future? Does that make it more of a threat that these things are kind of do have this cloak to hide under? You know, um, you know, it it could it could make it more of a threat when often when there is a shooting, like there's a shooting at a, a Jewish museum, I think last um, um, December or November. There's you know there's mm-hmm. one in in, in in D.C. in the last few years as well, and in, in many of these cases, um, people will say, well, these were lone wolves. Mm. But, you know, these were not necessarily lone wolves. They were receiving um, guidance directly, uh, or if not indirectly, rather, from these uh, various uh, attitudes that they're exposed to in the media and what they hear people in these um, you know, chat rooms and all these websites mm. saying, you know, it's sort of like after the Charlie Hebdo shooting, there were a slew of uh, retaliatory acts against Muslims and mosques. And they kept Paris. that quiet, didn't they? <laughs> right. Mm. Well, it's that thing, isn't it? It's incredible. If it's a, you know, if it's a African, African American, um, you know, it's that's the black community, it's black on black community, that's that's the whole community embroiled. If it's Muslims, it's all the Muslims. And if it is someone who quite often is a white male, they're working in solitary. Mm. It's that sort of, you know, he can't be blamed. He's just this young, poor guy, you know, with no influence at all. And it's just, it's just, you know, it's just, that's the way that, 
it, you know, it's so confusing. It's so confusing, and it's so it's so stark to you know to you know to you or I mm. because we are aware of it. But to many, they'll just take that as oh, you know, this poor guy acting in isolation, and you know he was misunderstood. But when it's a when it's a you know, a minority, that's a whole it's a whole race that's accountable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the whole race gets pathologized. They need new leaders and and so forth and so on, you know. Um, uh, And I was thinking of just this, like, one particular case where a man uh, stabbed to death, a Muslim man. Mm. One man barged into the home of a Muslim man and stabbed him to death in front of his wife and child. And um, I think this was, was, if not in in Paris, in France. Mm. And um, afterwards... Uh, the, the report says that the, the man who committed the murder was disturbed. Mm. Uh, so he's a he's so he's a lone wolf and he's disturbed. Yeah, of course. You know, you know, he's not he's not accountable for his own actions because you know he is. You know. But while he's committing the the act, he he's actually commenting on his victim's religion. Mm. So so where does where does that come from? Yeah. You know. Um, where do, where does that come from? Or even when uh, and Claudia Rankin mentioned this, even even when uh, Michael Brown's uh, murderer uh, killed him before shooting him, he says he felt that he was looking at a demon, mm-hmm. and he felt like a little boy. You know, um, you know, where are these images come from? So we may be calling these people lone wolves, but um, there is a there's there's a, a the society in which we live provides far too many occasions where they are um, exposed to like images and ideologies that mm. uh, you know sort of implant implant this in mm. them and so normalize it i guess mm. and, and normal exactly and normalize it mm. yeah that's sad and um, i wanted to maybe touch on your experience of or in and of the uk so what do you know of what do you know of us what do you think of us us Brits. Of, of, the, <laughs> of the of the UK in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are your ex- what are your experiences? So, um, you know, well, I, I well, you know, I, I discovered the voice of the novel um, in 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 Ireland, so that was great. But mm. uh, Ireland is Ireland technically part of the UK? Anymore? Northern Ireland is, Northern. yeah. Northern, only Northern, right? So, yeah, so that doesn't really count. Um, you know, I've I've. Ireland, Dublin is a, I don't know if you, I was at university in Dublin. It's a very interesting place in terms of like race and minorities. It's quite, um, yeah, I guess, oh, I'm trying to think of, a, think of a tactful way of putting it. <laughs> kind of um, <Yeah>. problematic. <laughs> Selective. Selective. <laughs> you know, well, I've, been in, I've been to Dublin a couple of times. You know, um, when I've been in London, it's usually only been at, uh, is it St. Pancreas? Mm, yeah. Station, yeah, catching the um, the ch- like channel from Paris because I was flying in and out of Heathrow or something for some reason. But um, you know, my my understanding is that there is um, I shouldn't say what my understanding is because that's that's all based on like secondhand information. Well, you know, share share, <laughs> you know, that's fine. <laughs> but from you know from what I've from what I've read, my understanding is that there is. Um, there's definitely um, there was if there even if there's no longer tension between like the East Asian uh, community and mainstream mm. community, or at least between those from the uh, subcontinent mm. and the mainstream community. Um, you know, I know that London's a wonderfully um, you know, international city, but it, it seems to be suffering and mm. has been for some time a, a bit of what's happening, you know, like in San Francisco and uh, other other cities in the uh, the U.S. where um, you, you have to almost be rich to be able to live in the city now. Yeah. You well, that's know. the thing, isn't it? That's what we're, that's, yeah, that's our, I suppose our problems aren't so, you know, our problems aren't probably as, as clean cut as yours. Mm. Um now that we're in the age of what, of what they're kind of calling um, the intern age is, you know, the only way of doing anything remotely creative that won't earn you lots of money is to have really rich parents, which 
yeah. obviously <laughs> it's kind of a hideous hideous idea that that's what's defining people and choosing their careers for them mm. also race you know, relations are, are yeah. still poor mm. they're still poor here so i think you know it just seems that across across the board mm. um a lot of problems mm. You know, yeah, you know, in the UK, the, US. The thing is that if I if I'm in if I'm in London or if I'm if I'm in London or I'm in Paris, I'm not going to be uh, treated the same way a local would be treated once someone hears me speak, and mm. I'm well aware of that. So mm. as soon as someone becomes aware that I'm a tourist, or as soon as someone hears me um, just destroy the French language, <laughs> um, then they're suddenly very nice to me, right? They're like, oh, we don't actually need to follow him through the store, yeah, um, because he didn't like come all this way to go to jail for stealing a beer mm. um you know but i i do notice how other people might be received might be received mm. um you know but what um but you know what you what you said about the intern age being so hideous is all, you know i think also a little bit disturbing because in the end this means that um you know very few people will be able to tell stories that are heard yeah you know, or make art. So then, who gets to make art? Yeah, you know, exactly. Apart from trust yeah, fairness. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and you can you can argue that the internet has sort of flattened, you know, the market or flattened distribution, but that's not really true. That's mm. not really true. You know, um, there's a big difference between self-publishing and having a book come out with, um, you know, Fourth Estate or mm. Harper's. No, mm. Absolutely. Mm. We're all just kind of stroking our chins there, going like, mm, God, yeah. fuck, God. there's so much to do, really there's so much to, wrong. There's a lot to think about. Oh, God. Um, we're going to end, officially end, on one um, question that always just brings up some very interesting answers. Uh, which one book do you wish you'd written? Oh, you know, this is, this is hard. Um, I... The first book that comes to mind, um, because of its absolutely exquisite structure, is If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Mm. Um, but then, uh, you know, almost anything by Toni Morrison, uh, mm, her yeah. language wants me to just, you know, go back to the crib and, you know, start all over. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, that's great. Yay. Thank you so much.